You're listening to a Rock Candy podcast. Hey, I'm Andrew. And I'm John. Our show, Magnified Pod, is the only podcast that discusses culture, religion, politics, and deep dives into the discographies of the bands that shaped a generation of 90s youth group kids. Check out Magnified Pod on the Rock Candy Podcast Network and wherever you get your podcasts. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and we are here on the Rock Candy Podcast Network. For more shows like this one, go to rockcandyrecordings.com. All right. Well, we have a really fun episode for this week. We're talking about werewolves and moral panics and history, three of my very favorite things. Uh, But before we get to that, I do have to thank my patrons. So I believe in bringing these conversations to the world for free. I think that we need long-form, in-depth conversations online now more than ever. So I am delighted to bring these conversations to all of you for free. But I need help to do that because it is an incredible amount of work from booking to recording to editing and then finally posting and marketing. It's a lot of work and I am a one-man show. So in order to make that possible and sustainable, I do need your help. So for this week, I have to thank Sam, Megan, and Ash Mania for becoming patrons. Thank you so much. You are my personal lords and saviors, and I truly could not do this without you. And anyone who is listening to this who might be interested in joining their number, please go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long, or just use the link in the show notes. You will get extra content, my House of Heretics podcast with Timothy, uh, with Timothy McPherson, uh, former minister churned heretic from the Salvation Army, and we talk about all kinds of interesting things going on in the world, religion, politics, various controversies, online bullshit, what have you. If that interests you, then do please become a member on Patreon. There are other ways to support the show, however. I understand that we're all still struggling from the COVID pandemic. The economy is on fire, and I really need you to take care of yourself first and foremost. So if you're unable to support me financially, I completely understand. The best way to support this show is to just listen to it, enjoy it, subscribe to it wherever you listen, and share it with your friends. Also, this show is sponsored by thesatanictemple.tv. The Satanic Temple has an incredibly interesting and creative community, and there's all kinds of fascinating stuff on TST TV. Live streams, talk shows, rituals, lectures, all kinds of fascinating stuff. And if you're into new religious movements and weird occult stuff, then TST TV is for you. And you can get one month free by using my promo code, SACREDTENSION, all caps, no space, at checkout. All right. Well, with all of that out of the way, I'm delighted to welcome ZK to the show. Hi, how are you? I'm great, Stephen. Thanks for having me. So we were both presenters at the I forget when this was. Was that in, was this in 2020 or 2021? Like all the years are blurring together now. <laughs> uh, it's all one long pandemic year, but I think it was the end of 2020. 
That sounds right. Yeah. So we were in the we were both presenters at the World Congress on Moral Panics uh, put on by Gray Faction, which is a campaign of the Satanic Temple. And you gave this just amazingly fascinating lecture about the werewolf trials, which is like a much lesser known uh, event in history of uh, like analog or or comparable to the witch trials. Um, but we all talk about the witch trials. We all know about the witch trials. It's like embedded in our collective memory. But no one knows about the werewolf trials. And so before we get into this, tell us some about who you are and what you do in your area of study. Sure. So uh, as you already mentioned, I'm C. I am a member of council for the Satanic Temple Arizona. And I am, I want to make sure I frame this conversation by saying I'm not a historian by trade. I'm actually a, a sociologist by academic training. I'm a graduate student. Uh, and so I'm coming at this really from the perspective of someone who is interested in moral panics as a sociologist and uh, on a personal level as a Satanist, because it affects us all so profoundly. Mm. And also just a person who is a werewolf enthusiast. <laughs> Not to say that I am a werewolf enthusiast as much as some people who maybe dress up in fursuits and go to conventions about it. But I do think that werewolves have gotten short cultural shrift, particularly in the face of that much more famous monster, the vampire. But to me, werewolves represent all these incredibly interesting sociological and societal and psychological things. They're really, um, they're grappling with many questions of nature versus nurture and what it means to be human versus animal and where we fit in the evolutionary scale. And uh, as Anton LaVey once famously said, there's a beast in man that must be exercised, not exorcised. And I think werewolves are a perfect encapsulation of that tension between how we feel about ourselves as higher order beings versus the reality of living as animals. I mostly just think they're super hot. I I just <laughs> I love werewolves. Ever since okay, so actually funny story. Ever since that ever since I like came out in high school, I just have had this massive, massive crush on werewolves. I just think that they're irresistibly hot. So there's also that. There is also that <laughs> I have a genre of romance fiction for you after this call. There's oh, a I can't. explosion, if you will, of werewolf romance fiction. Um, <laughs> I think is appealing for all the same sociological questions, right? I mean, what's sexier than someone really giving in to animal instinct? Absolutely, yeah. Let's uh, let's definitely uh, talk about that and share notes about how hot werewolves are. Um, so let's back up some and define a moral panic, uh, because you know those of us in TST and those of us who are Satanists are very familiar with what a moral panic is, but a lot of people listening to us might not be familiar. So define what a moral panic is. Sure. So I will give a definition that is sort of loosely based on my reading on this topic, although I'm certainly not a professional scholar of new religions, who are most of the people who deal with moral panics as scholars. But moral panics, the essential core of a moral panic, I would say, is really a subversion of concerns about something else into the form of a psychological frenzy of fear about something that has no factual evidence but is rooted 
deeply in a particular belief system. And that's really abstract. So maybe an example will um, will give some, some context. So we had a moral panic over Satanism in the 80s and 90s. And there's all kinds of reasons that that happened, but some of them were that this fear of cultural and sociological phenomenons that were happening at the large scale, like women working outside the home for the first time, or the push of feminists to have the idea that childhood sexual abuse was much more common than anyone realized. Those things became impossible to grapple with on this sort of cultural psychological scale for everyone. And so the inability to grapple with those things got put into the context of a budding evangelical Christian movement, and it became pushed down below the surface into this panic around there are Satanists around every corner who are harming our children. And so that's what I mean when I say it's a concern at a large cultural social level that becomes sublimated into something else that doesn't have factual evidence. Yeah. And I feel like we are living in an age that's particularly ripe for moral panics because of things like Twitter and Facebook that just, you you know, feed on algorithmically feed on human insecurities. So it's important to understand this stuff right now uh, in, in the, our current digital age. So, so give us kind of a, a brief history of what happened with the werewolf trials. How, how did this begin and what time period was it and what happened? Sure. So it's hard to talk about the werewolf trials without talking about the witch trials, which we're probably all more familiar with that period. And early modern history um, from the mid 1500s, sorry, the mid 1400s to about 1650 ish, depending on where you were, where many, many people were persecuted as witches under the authority of the church and in the guise of various anti-religious practices, like that classic going into the woods, into a Sabbath with the devil, signing your name in the book, having intercourse with the devil. I think we're all sort of familiar with that context, The werewolf trials were a subset of those trials where something very unique happened and they didn't happen everywhere. It was, um, it was particular regions of certain countries, usually rural areas, although not exclusively, you would have witch trials that followed the same pattern largely, but instead of people being accused of being sorcerers or witches or working curses on their neighbors, they were accused of being werewolves. And what's more interesting to me about or what sets apart the werewolf trials is they were often connected to very specific physical events. So there's records of things like murders and there's records of things like shepherdesses being found, you know, gored to death in the woods and these horrible, horrible murder scenes, that kind of thing. And so unlike the witch trials where you had this sort of very tenuous connection between cause and effect in the sense that like, It could be something like, oh, my cattle are not giving milk anymore. And I think it's because my neighbor cursed me and my neighbor is a witch, which is sort of a tenuous connection. There's this very physical reality of someone turned up dead or multiple someones or children were going missing. And then figuring out the explanation became about werewolves. So that's really interesting to me because from your lecture, it sounded like the majority of people accused of being werewolves were men, whereas the majority of people accused of being witches were, of course, women. And and I wonder if 
that division between, you know, accusations of witchcraft were far more ephemeral, whereas accusations of against werewolves were far involved far more like carnal and bloody events. And I wonder if that I don't know. I I wonder if there's a gender divide there in terms sure. of those accusations, like like in terms of the types of things that men and women would be accused of. Does that make sense? Am I making any sense about that? Absolutely. That gender division between how we think about how women violate social orders and how men violate exactly, social orders. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like men men being more, uh, there, be, there being greater physicality and I guess you could say strength and bodiliness to to men's crimes and then something far more, I guess, unfalsifiable <laughs> with women's crimes. I don't know. Does that make sense? It does. I want to be careful here to say that um, the werewolf trials have not received a tremendous amount of scholarship, so it's hard to talk about them very definitively. From the records we do have, it does appear that men and women were accused of lycanthropy in approximately the same numbers, but you're not wrong in the sense that what they were accused of was different. So mm-hmm. women were more likely to be seen as being part of a werewolf pack who was subordinate to uh, usually a male leader, and they were often accused of crimes like sexual promiscuity whereas men were assumed to be the ones who you are going out and eating children you are performing familial cannibalism you're doing all these very bloody very raw very sort of physically powerful things so you've hit the nail on the head there just not quite at the right angle it was about equal numbers of men and women but what they were accused of was very gendered and i should be clear too that there weren't that many werewolf trials that we know of, which kind of also makes them interesting. There were probably in the hundreds, not the thousands, as opposed to you know tens of thousands of witchcraft trials over the period. Um, and that's really interesting because that tells us there's something unique happening with these particular trials that they only crop up every so often. They're not universal in the same way. What do you think th- that unique element is in the werewolf incidences? Yeah, this is a really interesting question. I think some of it is rooted in geography. I think some of it is landscape. So we know from an amazing review done by uh, a scholar named Linnell and his team that really went back and scoured a lot of historical data about wolf attacks in Europe. We know that if you lived in a rural area, wolf attacks were a real thing. And that's kind of hard to think about now. Um, (laughs) I only know that because I played The Witcher 3 on PlayStation 4. (laughs) And so I know all about wolf wolf attacks in rural areas, but that's the extent of my knowledge. (laughs) Yeah, it's like Skyrim, right? Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, The first thing I do in any Skyrim game is get the perk that lets you calm animals so I do not have to kill wolves. That is my number one priority when I start a new character. Um, But yeah, it's, it's partially areas that have real contact with wolves. Witchcraft can be anywhere, but you're not going to find accusations of lycanthropy in a city context as much because it simply isn't present in the mind as a fear in the same way. Part of it is also, and this is what I think is maybe the most fascinating thing of all about the wolf trials, where they turn up is related to continuing folk traditions around wolf magic. 
And I'll backtrack a little back bit here and say, I think we're probably all familiar if you if you are interested in the witch trials at all. There's multiple hypotheses around how the actual practice of witchcraft, if it existed at the time, related to what church authorities reported about it. So there's the, the Margaret Murray hypothesis. It's been largely discredited that the church was finding these very direct evidence of familial practices that had survived Christianization and that there were these sorcerous witch families who were still practicing their pre-Christian tradition. That there's not especially good evidence for that. That was very popular in the 70s and into the 80s, um, partially as a way to justify the existence of Wicca and other neo-pagan religious movements. Uh, that has since pretty much been discarded as a credible theory. Then you have uh, the author of Europe's Inner Demons. I don't remember his name offhand. Uh, he promulgates this idea of it, there was no witchcraft actually being practiced. These were just bog standard people who happened to get in the way of church authorities. And then church authorities exercised on them this sort of Freudian panic around Oh, witches walk among us. The devil is real. Do you have that author? You I do. I up? just looked him up. Norman Kahn. Thank you. Yes, it's the Kahn hypothesis, which is very much um, connected to psychological fears expressing themselves on these, these innocent people who had nothing to do with it. It was really an externalization of what church authorities feared. And then you have a hypothesis that's somewhere in the middle that many scholars think is probably true. And it's sort of a balance of the two. It's saying that probably there were some fragmentary survival of folk magic pre-Christian practices that people used or that became syncretized into Christianity. And that those people who were notorious for doing that were probably more likely to be persecuted as witches due to the, the connotations of that kind of practice. But that, that doesn't constitute a living tradition stretching back into the unbroken time, back to, say, the Druids or the original pagans or anything like that. All of that is a little bit speculation because our sources outside of the, the trial transcripts themselves are so spotty. What makes the werewolf trial so interesting is it's easier to make a direct connection. The places they cropped up had a tradition of what was called, particularly in Anglo-Saxon and Germanic areas, wolf charming. And that was the idea that there were certain people who had developed this relationship with the natural world and new ways to keep you safe from wolves. Hmm. And it wasn't necessarily connected to Christian tradition. Um, the speculation is that it, it predates that by quite a bit. And so these these charm workers were, people would come to them. If you were a shepherd, you would go get your wolf charm and that they had special powers connecting to wolves. And that is where the werewolf trials show up. And so it's this really interesting connection between a, an established and documented pre-Christian tradition of wolf charming, making that twist and trans being transformed by church authorities into this idea of somebody has an unnatural relationship with wolves and something's going on there. Yeah, that's fascinating. And, you know, this is just a speculation of mine. I wonder, I've wondered whether, because the lore of the werewolf goes back eons. I mean, it, it's very, very ancient. And and I feel ancient like... before, yeah. Say that one more time. Ancient Greece and before. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I feel like every culture has 
kind of this archetypal creature of some kind that is that transforms into something animalistic that 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 trespasses the boundary between human and animal and and does terrible damage to other human beings in some way and uh, this might just be because I'm a huge true crime fan, but I wonder if part of the root of that is occasionally, every so often, a person being born into one of these ancient cultures who is essentially a serial killer. And, you know, we have our own lore today about people like Jeffrey Dahmer and Ed Gein and Ted Bundy and all of these people. But I can totally see how kind of in a pre-modern society that is imbued with the supernatural, how the only explanation for someone as horrific as like an Albert Fish or a Ted Bundy is a myth and that maybe there's you know and so maybe in the deep past somewhere there there was a monster there was a human monster who became the prototype for these myths for what do you think of that do you is that off or i don't know that's something that i keep thinking about no i think that that well i mean I think it's scientifically problematic in the sense that that's basically not ever provable, right? But it is yeah, it's unfalsifiable, yeah, for sure. Yeah, but it intuitively makes a lot of sense. It's mm. not like serial killers were made in the eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the famous cases, actually, of a serial killer who was connected to werewolf lore is um, Gilles de Rey in France, who was a a famous child serial killer who became sort of a bogeyman he was so terrible and it does make sense that if you have no other explanation you're going to put it in the context of what's around you so think about being in a small village in the dark woods of france in the 1500s you're probably almost unreachable by paris and the government at some point depending on where you are depending on weather depending on the road system things like that and you're in a a natural environment where there are these large predators who have been known to prey on humans under the right circumstances. In that sense, you're probably, you're very tightly socially connected with everyone else in your community, right? For survival. And so a violation of that norm through something like serial killing or a terrible murder that's an even stronger violation than it is today in many ways, because you are dependent on each other for survival. And what's the only thing that you have any experience with that would do that? Well, it's probably a wolf. And so, yes, I think there's a very uh, intuitive psychological connection between the idea of sort of an ultraviolet person who violates this um, extremely important social bond that everyone relies on for survival and the biggest predator you're likely to meet in those dark woods. There's also a really interesting connection with true crime in the sense that a little later on, one of the things that um, drives the interest in werewolves, particularly the Beast of Gévaudan, which is later in the 1750s in France, I believe, is that became a huge story because it was just around the time that the first newspapers were starting to publish what they call, and I will slaughter the French on this, I'm sorry, Fate de Ver, which was 
diverse tales. It was a beginning of what we would think of as sort of the scandal sheets or the true crime tabloids. And so the Beast of Gévaudan owes a tremendous amount of its existence and its storytelling to this sudden burgeoning interest in true crime that came with the ability of people to read a newspaper. Hmm. That's fascinating. Yeah. And tell us if you might not have this off the top of your head, but is there a particular case that you find most interesting? Like, is there a particular trial case of a werewolf, uh, of well, of someone accused of being a werewolf that you find most interesting or illuminating? And if so, what what's the story of that case? Yeah, so I want to make sure I get these dates right. But my favorite and most interesting case, and one of the most favorite, uh, most famous, is of a man in Germany named Peter Stump or Stube or Stumpf. It's one of those things where you wrote down the name however you heard it in the records, and therefore it's a little different. Uh, and he was accused of werewolfery and witchcraft and cannibalism, sort of a triad of, of bad things. He was known as the werewolf of Bedburg, and he was found guilty. And he was executed by breaking on the Catherine wheel, which is probably one of the most horrible ways to die imaginable. And tell us, tell us what that is. Tell us what. The... Uh, sure. So take a wagon wheel or a large uh, okay, wheel. Okay. Content, time. content warning everyone, by the way. Okay. Carry on. <laughs> yes. This is a last podcast on the left would say gold star territory. For sure. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So take a wagon wheel or another large wheel and um, think of threading a shoelace through the spokes. But you're going to do that with the person that you are torturing's limbs. So that's already extremely uncomfortable and might dislocate them. And now you're going to take a hammer and you're going to hit every part that's on top of the wheel. So it's a way of pulverizing that person's bones when they're already in a position position of extreme discomfort and dislocation and at that point by the time you're done i can't imagine that decapitation is not something of a mercy yeah fun so <laughs> um yeah so a truly horrific way to die and so what what happened to him what where does the story go sure so this is bedburg germany probably around 1530 he was considered to be a werewolf because of this classic thing that you i mean you're it's going to ring true for fairy tales they were hunting a wolf in the woods that was supposed to have killed many people in the village and its left paw was injured right you know where this is going and when they came back to the village peter stump had a matching wound in his left hand and that was the proof that they, he was the werewolf and what's fascinating about this is he, so he was stretched on the rack before he was broken on the wheel. This guy did not have a good end to his life, but being stretched on the rack, of course you will say anything. It's torture. So he confessed to having practiced black magic since he was 12. He confessed to being part of a family of werewolves. Hmm. He claimed that the devil had given him a magic belt or a girdle that when he put on, he could transform into a wolf. That is a very common narrative you see across the, uh, the werewolf trials that he ate children and sheep and lambs and goats and men and women, like everything imaginable. I think he specifically confessed to eating 14 children. Um, and there's a great quote from the trials that he says, he ate their hearts panting hot and raw. And he described them as dainty morsels. 
one of the kids was his own son. Um, he was also accused of having an incestuous relationship with his daughter, which is sort of piling taboo on taboo breaking here. And what's so fascinating about Peter Stump is not necessarily that his trial was unusual for the werewolf trials. It kind of takes the form of most other trials. One is that it's so well documented, which is always great to have. And the other is if you look on Wikipedia, Peter Stump is listed as a German serial killer based on no evidence whatsoever than his trial transcript under torture. And I think that's fascinating that the echoes of that trial are still being presented as fact today. That is fascinating. And, oh, I I just had a question. Where did it go? Um, Hold on. It was right there. It was right at the tip of my tongue. Um, And it's gone. (laughs) That's fine. It happens. I'll jump in and say something else that I think probably should be contextualized in this conversation, which is not everyone thought werewolves were real at this time. I, I dislike the history, speaking about history as though, Everyone thought the same thing. Of course, humans were as diverse in their thinking as they are now. They were as smart as they are now. They just weren't operating with the same level of information. And so you actually, at some werewolf trials, you have physicians uh, giving testimony in both directions. You have physicians saying, yes, this person is a werewolf. But you also have physicians saying, no, this person thinks they're a werewolf. And they're what we would now call mentally ill. And so... Physicians would turn up and say this person has melancholia, which we would understand as like crippling depression um, and other types of mental illness. They think they're a werewolf. They're laboring under this delusion. They're really not. And what's even more fascinating is that in some ways, the idea of werewolves being prosecuted by the church goes against directly against a strain of Christian thought who thought it was heresy that anyone or anything, that any power other than God could transform human flesh. And so even within the church, you have this tension between werewolves are real and of the devil and only God has the power to do that. And the mere idea of believing in werewolves is in a certain way heretical. That's fascinating. It sounds like what Joseph Laycock in a few interviews I've done with him called uh oh what was it uh mate- uh medical materialism which mm-hmm. he, which he described as this uh idea of at least i mean this will probably be a total bastardization of what he said <laughs> everyone should just go back and listen to my interview with him about demon possession i did that i think 3 years ago and it's he's still one of my favorite guests but he talks about how we have this assumption that people in the past were just stupid People, mm-hmm. people in the medieval period or whatever, they were just all dupes. They were just all willing to believe stupid shit for stupid reasons. And that there was a but also that there is a unanimous stupidity. And that's mm-hmm. just not true. It, it's a far more like complex picture. And they are the they were operating with the exact same operating systems and brains that we have today like it is the exact same brain um and we have the exact same cognitive glitches that they did back then absolutely i think that's spot on and um i mean consider not to bring up a a touchy topic and what is supposed to be a fun episode but i mean consider how much access to scientific information and 
resources and education we have now. And we can't even convince everyone that COVID vaccines are safe in the modern world. Yes, right? Exactly. Exactly. No, this this stuff is ancient. Like like human mm-hmm. stupidity is ancient. And I And why wouldn't we assume the same type of diversity of thought in the past? Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's true. And you know it and then human nature just collides with new innovations like the internet or the printing press or whatever <laughs> and but it just but it's it never changes it's just always the same it it just you know enters a new technological context and we have to like deal with it in new ways but it's ultimately just the exact same human nature that we've been dealing with the entire time and just listening to you talk like um you know this person being uh, put on the wheel after being put on the rack and then being decapitated because he had a wounded paw, a wounded hand. Uh, I'm just like, oh, thank God for, you know, my immediate thought was thank God for rationality. Thank God for, you know, standards (laughs) of, of critical thinking. And that's true, but also that initial thought is there were there were people back then trying to think critically about this stuff there were there there were people trying to critically examine this subject yeah and also i think it's probably a misnomer to say it was only because his hand was wounded i mean think about when we make accusations of each other and i think anyone who's in a small community um like satanism or any any subculture that has a tight-knit community is familiar with this if you find someone who is not to your taste or doesn't work the way you do, or you feel is immoral and you feel should be removed from that community. If you are presenting a public case, the reason you give is probably not the only reason. So we know that we don't know anything more. We don't, it's not like the Salem witch trials where there's enough sort of uh there's enough of a paper trail to be able to speculate we do know he was a wealthy farmer we know that he may have been a widower who remarried we know that he may have had a son of unknown age and potentially an inappropriate relationship with a stepdaughter like there are so many potential reasons why he may have ended up as the pariah of this community and he had a wound on his left hand after we heard a wolf is probably only one and probably only the surface level even if that wasn't conscious on their part yeah so so it's a post hoc rationalization it it would be like Mm -hmm. a a post hoc rationalization of it's like here here are all of these kind of intuitive reasons for why we dislike him and think he might be a werewolf and then there's the post hoc rationalization that comes along of oh his his hand is wounded or something like that Is, is that basically what you're saying Absolutely. And it could have also been a strategic move to get the authorities involved. Mm. It could have been he really was a monster, that he was a murderer, that everyone in the village knew it, that they didn't have proof, and that using the form and the mythology of the werewolf was the fastest and most efficient way to get someone who could do anything about this person involved in the trial. I mean, I have no evidence for that. It's pure speculation. But People were not stupid, and it certainly could is a lever that could have been moved to bring the church into a, a bad situation. So you're you approach this as a sociologist, mm-hmm. which makes me wonder if you find this topic fascinating because of what it might say about our current society 
or human nature right now. Um, if that's true, what what draws you to the subject, and what what makes you I don't know. In in what way are the werewolf trials kind of still applicable, or like a lesson for our current situation as human beings? Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, I think there's some some generality. There are some general comparisons that can be drawn in terms of the particular interest that people have in bringing individuals to justice, whether or not there's a lot of evidence, right? Um, so there's the, the very broad scale comparison of maintaining the social order is almost always more important than whether or not any one individual is innocent or guilty of a particular thing. And I'm not advocating that position. I'm just saying that's how societies tend to work. Um, and so you can certainly draw the direct connection there of it was very important for these societies to ensure that with who they perceived as werewolves were brought to justice, partially to ensure the reification of the church as authority and the realistic existence of the devil, um, belief in the devil as like a, a, a power in the world, that kind of thing. But I think also it's, it's just a cautionary tale maybe around how we think about taboo breaking and what we assume taboo breaking to be. And maybe the best example I can give for this directly or the best line I can draw is sort of how we think of other cultures. And so when we think about animalistic behavior and what looks like animalistic behavior to us, I think the immediate knee-jerk reaction is animalistic behavior is anything we deem uncivilized. And what civilized means and who gets to define that and whether or not civilized is according to your culture or according to my culture, all of those things have really direct connections to the idea of the werewolf as someone who breaks with human society by acting like an animal. I also think that the werewolf maybe holds some, uh, some lessons for us. And this is really interesting. There's, there's a few cases where werewolves were actually presented as positive in the werewolf trials. Uh, there is in fact a man who was accused of being a werewolf and he said, well, okay, fine, yes, I'm a werewolf. But the thing you don't know is that every year in the fall, the devil and his minions come to steal the village's grain stores and we would all starve. But I'm a werewolf and I take on my wolf form and I chase the devil away so the village can prosper. And he completely flipped the script. He said, it's true. And your entire cosmology is true, but think about it from this angle. And that was a really interesting way of using that animalistic taboo breaking idea in service to his community. And so I think sometimes it would benefit all of us to think about what kind of civilized behavior am I doing that I don't need to be doing? What kind of uncivilized behavior can I break the mold with, but that is in service to the community? I think Joseph Laycock used that story in Speak of the Devil to kind mm -hmm. of explore the, the role of modern Satanism of, you know, I, I think he described it as the underworld 
you know, asserting itself into the overworld. And it's like, you know, suddenly the underworld is, you know, a, a being from the underworld is, is good. Um, my brain is all foggy this morning, so I'm probably getting all of that wrong. But, but the idea of subversion and, and, you know, taking on something that has historically been seen as evil and, and flipping the narrative on its head and using it in the service of good. And, uh, what you were just saying about taboo and and being animalistic, really having to do with culture. I just finished a book by Bill Schutt called Cannibalism, A Perfectly Ooh. Natural History. And mm-hmm. there's a whole section of that book. And he's he's a zoologist. So he really delves into cannibalism in the context of different species. And then he explores it culturally for humans. And he says that... There's very, very little evidence of the cannibalism that was claimed um, in the New World when uh, the the colonists came and, and started colonizing the New World and invading and massacring and just doing all of the horrific, horrific, horrific things um, in the New World. And that the accusation of cannibalism was a way of solidifying indigenous peoples inhumanity in the mind of Europe in in the mind of the old world right and that it was a very very effective tool to solidify their inhumanity and it sounds like this rhymes with that 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 uh in a different way you know not necessarily against indigenous people but there but it is a a a weapon of dehumanization of to to ensure that someone is not seen as human and i feel like we see similar we've seen similar things through history um with you know, against gay people, against trans people, of, of, against black people, uh, against Jewish people, any minority of, of you know, lobbing accusations against minorities to kind of solidify in the mind of the majority that they are inhuman and therefore not deserving of human respect. Uh, and so the, I see this. What you were just saying is is just another like ancient trope of human nature where we demonize we we attribute inhumanity to people through various myths or through various accusations or whatever so that then we don't have to treat them as human absolutely and i think cannibalism is a huge is a perfect one to hit on for that because it's such a huge taboo and it's such a part of almost every every moral panic really if you think about it it is absolutely the witch trials themselves there weren't accusations that like unlike the werewolf trials that witches were eating children whole but there was certainly the accusation that they were using infant blood in their rights and that goes all the way back to christians accusing other early christians they didn't like of child sacrifice and anti-jewish panics and all of that Cannibalism in particular. I mean, it's adrenochrome now, right? Exactly. The modern panic. There's there's something about cannibalism and the use of the human body that is particularly used to other people. What is fascinating to me about the New World accusations of cannibalism is it's my understanding from friends who are Southwestern archaeologists 
that the evidence is very up in the air, whether or not there was cannibalism in the new world or not. But the other thing is, if you're going to accept the evidence that there was cannibalism in the new world, there's about an equal base of evidence that there was cannibalism regularly in Europe in prehistoric times. And so it's like, you can't accept one and discard the other. Either everybody was cannibalizing or nobody was cannibalizing. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So fast forward to the modern day. We still have an infatuation with werewolves. I, for example, still find them ravishingly hot. And what is that? What Talk some about why... And I know that this is probably too broad a question to be useful. Um, what is it about werewolves that we find fascinating and kind of uh, irresistible? I think a huge part of it is in werewolves, we have a stripping away of everything that is unnecessary. And in many ways, everything that is dangerous, except the physical. My human lover might lie to me about how much he likes me. Uh, He might lie to me about why he's with me. She might tell me I look great in those pants when I really don't, right? Um, A werewolf is not capable of that when they are in wolf form or when that beast form. There is, it is a very direct and very trustable, like to get, um, to take it to the logical like romance novel extreme, if you are chosen as a werewolf's mate, you know there's nothing else going on there. There's no ulterior motive. There's nothing. It's just that base level like, this is my person in the sexual and romantic sense. Yeah, there's a carnal sincerity about it. Exactly. And in the same way, I think sometimes, (laughs) and this is maybe a, a messed up thing to say, but for modern people dealing with modern dangers, there's almost a restfulness in the sense of like, the only thing this werewolf can do to hurt me is physical, right? That's a very straightforward danger. Um, it obviously isn't a danger that mixes in a lot of adrenaline, which can be very sexy, right? That fear, death, sex mm-hmm. response, getting all mixed up together. But also you're not like, you're not in a state where you're worried that this werewolf is going to hurt me by not paying the bills next month, right? It's purely like, if I come out of this alive, I'm fine. Mm. And I think there's something very, very appealing about the simplicity of that and very appealing about the carnality of that. And also them being in that state gives you as a a hypothetical partner, as the reader or the stand-in to be the same way. It gives you permission to be exactly the same way. By having the werewolf unleash the beast within, so to speak, it gives us permission to put our humanity aside too. Yeah. And by humanity, we don't actually mean our fundamental humanity, but those like superfluous and unnecessary civilizing impulses that right. restrain us that you know the the super ego for lack of a better word that the those societal norms and i don't know it's this is all reminding me i haven't thought about this in years jesus christ this is like the first time i'm <laughs> i'm thinking about this like when i was in high school and you know i was in a christian super conservative christian high school and i was in the closet and i was just beginning to grapple with my orientation i started writing this cringy as fuck high school 
story, you know, about the a, a teenager who discovers he's a werewolf. Of course, like the most the the most cringy like high school thing you can imagine, and but what it really was, it was it was a metaphor for my own orientation and and. Mm-hmm discovering that I was a werewolf, discovering that there was something not human about me. I interpreted it at that time as something not human, something deeply animalistic and and anti-human that was deeply frightening. And it's, I, I think that's one of the reasons why I am drawn to the werewolf myth because i think we all have something like that inside of us be it a fetish or be it a um a, a sexual orientation that is or a gender identity that is unaccepted within our society or or a various religious belief like satanism or whatever it is you know i i we all have something that feels out of step with society and feels inhuman when it might first rear its head inside of us. And so the werewolf story, you know, I, I think that scary stories, that that scary myths and scary stories, that they stick around, they're valuable because they they help us process our own nature in many, many different ways, you know. And so that's why the ghost story is still around. That's why the horror story exists. Because it I because it serves a very important psychological need for people. And I and I think that the werewolf story is similar. And I totally internalized it. It was totally helpful mm-hmm. for me in coming to terms with my own sexuality. Um, it's like it was the first thing that I reached out to and, and grabbed onto when I started to experience my gay orientation. I think I had a very similar thing with werewolves in the sense that um, I grew up in the South as a, I am a cis woman. I'm a cis white woman. Um, there's a certain demand of femininity and whether or not you do it is up to you, but you pay a price. But werewolves are the exact antithesis of that, particularly for people who have been socialized female or otherwise expected to be non-physical and submissive. And so when you learn about werewolves, at least for me, it was like, oh, hell yeah, I want to run naked under the moon through the woods once a month. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, I want to eat deer with my teeth. Like, I want big claws and big fangs, and I want to be completely unconcerned about whether or not I'm pretty because I'm a motherfucking wolf. Mm -hmm. And... And there are times, right, where we've all been in the place of like, and I would just love to rip the people I don't like's hearts out and eat them in front of them. (laughs) And so, (laughs) please don't, I please don't, you know, dear listeners, isolate that one bit of audio and post it on YouTube or Twitter, please. This is this is my request. Make it your your ringtone. I don't care. (laughs) 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 Um, whomst among us has not been there, right? Absolutely. I think that was part of the appeal of the werewolf is just it's this pure power that we may or may not have access to in our daily lives, depending on how we're socialized and what we're expected to do. Hmm. That's fascinating. Is there any have you ever come across a story that, you know, I'm I'm pretty much a materialist. I'm a skeptic. I'm an atheist. And I come across every so often, though, I come across a story that just kind of blows my mind. And I'm like, what the fuck? 
happened there? Like what what actually happened? It, do you it, do you ever come across a story studying this stuff where you're like maybe this is true? Like do you ever have a pause? Do you ever have a moment? Like at at three a.m. when you're when you're reading about something or you're listening to something and you're like, "Fuck it, werewolves are real. They exist." <laughs> because like I have the I have this moment on a semi regular basis. Like I remember, oh, I've told this story several times on the podcast now, but uh, a year or two ago, it was like three a.m. I was falling down the YouTube rabbit hole, couldn't go to bed, and. You know, I was watching this spelunker guy who explored caves and then he he did this video where he f- claimed to have discovered paranormal activity deep in this cave somewhere and it was and I was like it's real. It's all fucking real. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, it only took a Google search to, you know, see how he had faked it and so on. But do you ever still have moments like that where you're where you're like, this shit is real. Werewolves totally exist. I I'm so glad you asked this question because I didn't even think to tell the story. But that was the genesis of my entire interest in werewolves was. And I'm going to walk you into it. It's a little complicated. I had just graduated uh, college and I had a gap between my graduation and my first like real big girl pants job. And I was like, I want to do something totally unrelated to what I've been doing for four years. I want to do be way out of my comfort zone. I want to go somewhere new. And I ended up doing woofing, which is worldwide opportunities on organic farms. And it is an a program where you provide labor in exchange for food, room and board and training and learning how to take care of these animals. And so I drove from Eastern Tennessee to the deepest part of Southern Missouri in the Ozarks Mm -hmm. to a, it's not even a town. It's an unincorporated community with a population of like 42 called Falcon, Missouri to work on a goat farm there. And this was, I probably had a cell phone, but not GPS. It was like only for making calls and texting. And I did have a GPS unit, but my GPS unit absolutely did not know where I was. It was one of those cases where you're like driving and it's filling in the roads behind you. Mm-hmm. And the only, the only like road markers, it was all county roads, not even state roads. And they just had numbers and it's deep in the Ozarks where I've never been before. It's heavily forested. It's beautiful. It's incredibly beautiful. It's rolling hills. It's rivers. There's absolutely nothing. It's the middle of Mark Twain National Forest. And for some company, as it's getting dark, I turn on the radio. And all I have is radio. I don't have anything else. My car's old. And I hear a very proper radio announcer voice with no explanation and no lead in just say this is the proper way to deal with werewolves and then give an explanation in very nice like proper english like announcer english about how you deal with a werewolf problem in your town and i'm totally alone i'm going somewhere i've never been it's dark i haven't spoken to people for like i've been driving for like 12 hours and there is a sheer moment of absolute short circuit in my brain where I was like, fuck me entirely. Werewolves are real. 
I got it wrong this whole time. Somehow my entire life, I've just assumed they're not real. And now I'm finding out that they are. And that lasted about five terrifying minutes as I'm in the darkening woods by myself in my old car. And then the announcer actually comes on and says, and that was a reading from Sabine Baring Gould's The Book of Werewolves. And what was happening? (laughs) (laughs) That the local radio station didn't have a budget for anything. And so they would just play LibriVox recordings when they weren't actively (laughs) broadcasting. And so this was a LibriVox recording of Sabine Baring Gould's The Book of Werewolves. And I was hooked from then on. I mean, it was an absolute like, okay, but what if werewolves were real? What if this was really like the world we were living in? And that is my werewolf interest origin story is that five minutes of bone chilling, not just fear, but this sense that I have been completely wrong about how the world works and what's real my entire life until now. I love that story so much. I, and I think you told that story during the, um, uh, your talk at the uh, World Congress of Moral Panics. And no, I love that story so much because it's it's so human. Like we, we I've, I well, I, at, I won't speak for everyone, but I at least have those moments, I would say quite frequently. I, I think that my brain is just designed to just trust people. <laughs> like my brain is just designed to believe shit and that might have something to do with my upbringing where I was raised by an exorcist like who knows um I can tell you all about that later at some point um and and I I I have these moments on a near regular basis of just experiencing total enchantment Mm -hmm. and terror and awe and surprise and astonishment um, because suddenly a piece of information hits my world and it feels like it instantly reconfigures everything. And then a few minutes goes by and I'm like, oh, wait, no, no, that doesn't add up. What? What? <laughs> like, no, that's not re- that's not true at all. <laughs> um, but no, I love that story. And so I, th- I think we're coming to the end of our time here, but this has been so much fun. Um, for people who want to read more about this subject or um, kind of uh, uh, related subjects, are there any books that you'd recommend? There are, and I will bring them up right now. I have a nice little list. So one of the first things that I would recommend is a couple of academic articles on the werewolf trials. Uh, One of the really interesting ones is by Metziger and it's called Battling Demons with Medical Authority. And it's really about this tension between um, doctors position on werewolves and the two conflicting church positions on werewolves. The other person I would really recommend is a writer called Blecourt who wrote a number of articles and books uh, particularly one called The Werewolf and Gender that's really good, Werewolf Histories, and uh, a really interesting sort of synopsis of a case called A Journey to Hell, Reconsidering the Livonian Werewolf. There's also Matthew Beersford's The White Devil, The Werewolf in European Culture. And there's another one that touches on werewolves, but is just generally fascinating. It's Rolf Schulte's Man is Witch, Male Witches in Central Europe. And that's a really interesting overview of gender and witchcraft 
that also addresses werewolves, um, but is a little bit broader in scope. Awesome. Could you send me, could you email me that, uh, those, those titles and I will, I will put them in the show notes for people who are interested. And there's also a great sort of more accessible pop book on the Beast of Jevadon specifically called Monsters of the Jevadon by Jay Smith that I will also send to you. Beautiful. And for people who want to follow you on social media, uh, where can they do them? Let me try that again. Jesus Christ. For people, <laughs> That's when you know that it's at the end of the hour. I start being not able to communicate. Um, and for people who want to follow you on social media, where can they do that? They can find me on Twitter. I am at cat phrenologist, all one word, like Just a the, person. The best fucking Twitter handle <laughs> on the planet. I love that. <laughs> I could not believe it was not taken. So that's cat as in kitty and phrenologist as in someone who measures heads to determine personality types. Yeah. Uh, you can also. No, I was just going to say as in, you know, scientific racism. Exactly. I, I don't yet charge for my cat phrenology services, but I feel that I should, as in $75 in a picture of your cat, and I will pseudoscientifically tell you all about its personality. This is actually just a way for me to make beer money and see pictures of people's kitties. <laughs> I'm going to send you... So my iPhone recently very helpfully informed me that I have over 600 pictures of my cats on my <laughs> iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> and, That's rude. And, yeah and i'm like okay look you don't need to call me out like this like i it, so i'm going to send you all 600 pictures of my cats and you I can you can analyze them measurements yeah exactly <laughs> and i will tell you that your cats have distinct personality traits such as cannot decide if they want to be indoor or outdoor from a closed door mm-hmm that they um, are inopportune poopers so that mm-hmm. they like to stink the place up at exactly the times you don't want that to be true. Mm-hmm. Very good. And then further revelations will have to await the photos. <laughs> That's Perfect. all the information I've amazingly gained just by walking, <laughs> seeing them walk past the camera. Beautiful. So. so we're totally launching your cat phrenology business now. This is totally happening. <laughs> yeah. We are doing this. It's like great rate my dick pick right like, <laughs> sometimes do but it's cats that's yeah. actually where the idea came from um yeah Amazing. and so you can also email me directly anytime at ms like ms or manuscript dot z dot k k a y at gmail.com beautiful well z this has been a lot of fun and you can come back anytime thank you so much i really appreciate you having me and remember to always save that that 5% of suspension of disbelief in your heart, just in case werewolves do turn out to be real. Absolutely. One never knows. They might act all of they might actually be real. All right. Well, that is it for this show. The music is by 11D7. You can find them on iTunes, Spotify. iTunes doesn't exist anymore. You can find them on Apple Music. <laughs> <laughs> I just now realized I've been saying that for like years now, and iTunes is no longer a thing. <laughs> Yep. (laughs) All right. Well, that is it for this show. The music is by 11D7. You can find them on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. The show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long, and is a production of Rock Candy Recordings. As always, hail Satan, and thanks for listening.